your phone, that's what I said. It's football on your phone, you can watch it in bed. Take it with you wherever you go. Show your friends and watch them all go. What is up? I am Steve Bennett, and this is Don Russ. Welcome to the Sportscasters. What's up, Don? Hey, we did that quick. We did. Introduced ourselves. We're this in. Week. This is uh, Season 3, Episode 21, August 8th, 2013, for the second time this week. We're here for what is really a big day for the show, something we're really excited about. Two interviews for you today from the NFL Network. The main man over there, Don, Rich Eisen, is making his Sportscasters debut. Sweet. When we, when we started the podcast, you think there was a chance in how we'd have Rich Eisen on the show someday? No, probably not. But then, like, three weeks in, we had Peter King or somebody huge. So, uh, Well, still, on the second show, awesome. we had the Puck Daddy, right? Right. Second show, we had the Puck Daddy. Third show, we had Deutsch. And by the sixth show, we had Poznanski, which is the first, like, okay. real big one. Right, right. Yeah. But we have uh, Rich Eisen from the NFL Network on the show today, and also we have Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, to educate us a little bit on the Johnny Manziel controversy from the week as it's developing. And actually, we got all kinds of things going on. I should mention you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can find our website, www.sports-casters.com. On the website, you can find what we've done just this week. Earlier in the week, we had Season 3, Episode 20. Adam Lazarus was on. So is Patrick J. Burns from Deadspin. Last week, we had Jenny Vrentis on from the Monday Morning QB. Also, we had Elizabeth Merrill from ESPN.com on the show. So all kinds of things. And next week, we already have recorded one interview for the show, and that's the interview that we're going to do for the Book Club Book of the Month, Difficult Men with Brad Martin. I already got that in the can. So he'll be on the show on Tuesday. Also, we finally tracked down Andy Staples. It's going to be on the show here sometime, either next week or the week after. And also, making his trumpet return to the sportscasters will be Mike Tirico. So we're rolling right now. Awesome, yep. Lots of bookings, lots of stuff going on. Again, we got Eisen and Mandel today. We're going to do a book club update. We're going to end the show with one last thing, and we're going to start it with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. I asked you last week when we were, or last show, two days ago, I guess, while we were planning this show, if I should just do football or if we should spread it out. And you're like, ah, do whatever. Well, I just went with football. I don't know if that's <laughs> laziness or if that w- was where most of the stories jumped out at me, but I have a lot of little football stories. Nothing, no bad, st- uh, injuries are bad. Injuries are always bad. And nothing, they're rapid right now. Yeah, nothing nothing uh, scandalous, though, which is nice. Anytime you can talk football without scandalous. The good. guys are too busy right now to worry about that. Good. Yeah. Except for the guys that are getting hurt, and I guess I'll start there. This will be uh, my first thing. Just the NFL injury update. 
Uh, two Saints done, I think, the day after the, the last po- – I mean, this yeah. is in the span of two days because we updated the NFL Right, Morgan, Morgan was already hurt, but he went right, now for a second official, opinion right. and they kind of officially announced DACL and done for the season. And the defensive end uh, – Coleman. Coleman also done for the season. The Bears lose cornerback Kelvin Hayden to a hamstring tear of some sort. Denario Alexander, a guy I was talking about getting drafted way too low in fantasy. Well, apparently this is why. And he, this guy seems to have all the talent in the world, just can never stay on the field. He's done for the year. Uh, an ex-Bills note, seemingly a good guy. Uh, nice third receiver maybe with most teams. Donald Jones is actually going to call it a career because of a kidney disease that I guess he's kind of struggled with his entire career, and he's going to – Retire relatively young. I don't have his age in front of me, but he can't be much more than... I thought I heard 26. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, yeah, that's the injuries for this week. I'm sure there's other minor ones. Donald Jones, the one with the the pretty hot cheerleader wife? No, that's the the tall receiver they had that is also gone now. Wow, I can't think of his name either. He had the Cowboys cheerleader, right? Right, yeah. David... David Nelson? Nelson. Yep, that was David Nelson. Too bad. Did you get to see any of Hard Knocks? I did not, know. It was great. It's The one bad thing about Hard Knocks is I immediately overrate the team that on there. Watching? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm like, oh, I got to draft that guy. Oh, I got to <laughs> get that guy in fantasy. Like, oh, Marvin Jones, what a stud. He's going to be fine. Well, who's their running back there? Uh, Giovanni. Bernard? Yep. Instead of. He drove a minivan to training camp. That's awesome. His mother-in-law's minivan. I can appreciate that. Yep, rock that to camp. Doesn't seem really into... Cars. Cars. <laughs> uh, what else is on there? Oh, you kind of mentioned injuries. The show kind of ended with uh, Larry Black. He's a defensive tackle. I think an undrafted guy from the area. He uh, dislocated his ankle the very end, and it was it was gross. It was a bad injury, and the oh, guys yeah. right away were kind of like, trainer, 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 and they show him in the training room kind of calling, I think it was his parents, and crying, and I guess he was doing pretty good too. So that's the uh, kind of bad thing about it. Probably another really cool moment. Jermaine Gresham, tight end from Oklahoma. Yep. Well, Geno Atkins, a lot of the show is about what a stud defensive tackle they have. Maybe the best guy, best defensive tackle in the league maybe. And they were doing the Oklahoma drill. And as guys are walking in, they're kind of like talking to him. And Jermaine Gresham's like, I want Geno Atkins. You know, because obviously he'd be the last guy probably you'd want in the Oklahoma drill. Especially if you're on offense. And uh, so the very last one was Atkins and Gresham. And Gresham slammed him. What is the Oklahoma drill? It's where they uh, they line you up like maybe a couple yards apart, and then the qu- there's a quarterback and a running back, and the ball gets handed off to the running back, and then the two guys kind of like engage. Oh, okay. And the idea is like to get through the block and okay. get the running back or to block the guy until the running back gets to the other side. So you're excited about Gresham this year now? I'm excited about every Bengal. I just want to draft <laughs> Bengals. You know what? Gresham was my – I think I had Gronkowski or, or – Jimmy Graham, someone that was hurt a lot last year, and uh, I had to pick up Gresham, and he, he worked. No, I got him in a trade after trading one of those guys away, and it worked great for me. Yeah, Dalton, AJ Green, all, all in. Yeah. Bengals, give me Bengals. All right, I'm just going to tack on to that my first thing because I just don't have a better spot for this. But uh, PredictionMachine.com. Apparently, they have evil supercomputers like our old buddy, uh, the Blue Horseshoe, uh, Zach. You score. What does his Sooner Zach. Sooner Zach. Uh, what is he now? Zach Rosenfield. Just Zach Rosenfield in the now. professional community. Yeah. 
blowing well, up uh, social media with the pictures from the Shark Tank events. Right, right. He's no longer with the AccuScore, so I don't feel married to their machines. So these PredictionMachine.com, I'm not sure how how good they, these ones work or how uh, what all the math is that goes into it, but what do you think your Cincinnati Bengals Super Bowl win percent chance is? Mm, uh, let's say, well, what's the, who's not, like, all right, so I'm going to guess that the 49ers have the best. That's right. And what okay. this is, is it runs a simulation of every NFL game 50,000 times. Okay. so if the And then 40, it does that throughout the season and the playoffs. And I'm going to say the 49ers are, good, are the best and that they're about 20% maybe. The 49ers does are anyone predicted win to win the Super Bowl in 20.1% of the simulations. Pretty good at this. Yeah. Okay. So if they win it one out of every five, I would say the Bengals probably win it one out of every 15 or 20. So I'll say they're about 5%. The Bengals are 2.6%. Hmm. Their playoff probability is 44%, 44.1%. Okay, let's say the Saints are probably a little bit better than the Bengals. So then I'll say the Saints are about 7%. They're in order by division. NFC South. These Saints are actually the third-ranked team in their wow. division. In their division. Hmm. Their Super Bowl win percentage, according to these computers, is 1.5%. Their playoff probability is 289 they actually have the Panthers finishing above them. I'll tell or you what, if having the, better probabilities. I don't if know. If the Panthers finish above them, I'm going to be pretty bent. I won't be happy. What do you think the Falcons' Super Bowl win percentage is? Not that far off from the 49ers. Uh, 14%? It's only 2.9. Really? In their in their rankings things. There. So the 49ers have an 18% better chance, even with the Seahawks in their division. So the Seahawks must be second best in the NFC? They are 72 Who's the best AFC team? The best Denver? AFC team, I believe, is Denver. And they are at... The Patriots are at 8.9. Denver is at... Houston's at 7.1. Denver's at 14.6. I'm surprised what a big favorite the Falcons are, or the uh, 49ers are. I'm not surprised they'd be first, but I'm surprised that they're first by such a sizable margin. Yeah, they... The... Denver is 14.6, Green Bay is 10.5, New England 8.9, Seattle 7.2, Houston 7.1. No other team is more than a 3% chance of winning, according to these computers at predictionmachine.com. It's kind of a cool thing, though. They have somehow fantasy duds, studs, sleepers picked out, along with their playoff per, or percent chances, the power rank on offense. The, a lot of little meaningless, I guess you is could say, Is it all free stats. to view? Uh, I'm not a member. So okay. PredictionMachine.com. It's this is their 2013 NFL Super Bowl odds picks preview. Very cool. All right, my first thing tonight. Remember baseball? I do remember. It baseball. seemed like for a while we were doing nothing but baseball. Now it seems like we're getting into football. We've kind of forgotten about baseball a little bit. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at the standings and say, well, if the playoffs started today, what would we have? So what we would have is this: in the American League, we would have. The Boston Red Sox waiting for the winner of the one-game playoff as the number one seed in the American League. That's amazing to me that that happens as often as it does in baseball with 162 games a year. The one-game playoff right now would be the Tampa Bay Rays hosting the Texas Rangers. And the other divisional matchup would be the Detroit Tigers versus the Oakland A's. So that's the American League. In the National League, 
Uh, let's see. The Pittsburgh Pirates would be the number one seed. That's crazy. They would await yeah. the wild card winner, which would be a matchup of two teams in their division, the Central. I mean, three Central Division teams in. The Cardinals hosting the Reds. And the other division would be, or the other matchup would be the Braves playing the Dodgers. So I guess it was a good thing Don Mattingly wasn't fired. One last note, kind of an interesting thing about baseball. The other day, the Braves and the Nationals were playing a game. And uh, early in the game, Bryce Harper, who's one of the best players in the league, hits a bomb. I think they estimated it at 430 feet or so. Solo home run. He does a bad flip. Pretty slow home run trot, I guess. Yeah. There's a thing called uh, Trot Tracker. It's okay. A, a Twitter account. And they said it was his longest trot of the season. So, uh, Tehran, who was pitching for the Braves, I guess is sort of annoyed. Julio Tehran. And he comes back next time Harper's up, and he punks the dude. Right. Hits him pretty pretty good. Bench is clear. No no fighting. It's kind of like a long thing down the Huddling, line. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. standing around. A lot, of, a lot of talking. So, the Braves get two runs at some point. Take a 2-1 lead into the ninth. 2-1 lead into the ninth. And Harper's up. Two outs. Uh, Craig Kimbrell's on the mound for the Braves. Best One of the best closers in the league. Best players in the league. One of these great individual matchups that baseball's famous for. And Kimbrell blows a 99-mile-per-hour fastball past Harper to end the game. Okay. So you'd think that would probably quiet Harper a little bit. The fact that, one, his team is now 14 and a half games behind the Braves. Right. The year after, they were so sure that they were in the midst of a dynasty that they shut down their best pitcher. Right, right. Yeah. You know, because they're just going to be in the playoffs all the time. So we don't need to worry about this playoff run. We'll, we'll, we'll get it next year. And the fact that he was just blown off the field by Kimbrell, he was still yapping after the game, saying he wasn't surprised he was hit because he hit the ball really far, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but regardless, what's really cool about it is wouldn't it be great if the Braves and the Nats really kind of got something going here, a really good rivalry Baseball for the rivalry, next yeah. you know, bunch of years because I'm, I'm down for that. What's the best rivalry right now? It's still got to be Yankees Yankee and Sox. Sox, right? But... That's fading a bit, especially with the Yankees being, being down. Yeah, I mean they're fifty-seven and fifty-six right now. They're eleven and a half games out of first place, yeah. and A Rod has come back, but not made a difference <laughs> so far. Surprisingly, he's uh, they're zero for three with him in the lineup, and he's on a three-game hit streak though. So he's only what fifty-five games and away those from the record combined for about one hundred and forty total feet. Oh yeah, not exactly bombs into <laughs> the outfield. My second football thing this week, I guess this is the most controversial thing, and this is controversial more in a TMZ way than in a drunk driving legal sort of way, but uh, two high-profile players kind of blasting their old teams, and that's Wes Welker and Greg Jennings. Chris Ballard, our buddy Chris Ballard's in on this. Wrote all about Welker, yep. Yeah, it was a good article on uh, grantland.com. You can check that out. Belichick. uh, S.I. Or SI. Yeah, Ballard's SI guy. Sorry, sorry. Right. We like them both. Who's the guy with a B from Bernard or something like that? Uh, Barnwell. Right? Barnwell. I think I read something from him today, too. My bad. Yeah, he had a camp preview about uh, the Jags and the Ravens that was pretty good, too. Anyway, um, Welker of Belichick says he got on me, or he got on him. I wrote my writing is really small here. And we have no life. In a way no one ever had before. And he said it wasn't just him. He does it to everybody. It's just the way he is. He talked about doing interviews, and he wasn't worried about what the fans were going to think during his interviews or what uh, 
I don't know, his parents were going to think, like, he just worried about what Belichick was going to think. So he ran the show there, and he was he was tougher than anywhere else that Welker's ever been. And I guess that's not surprising. Didn't he say that even now when he's doing interviews with the Broncos, somehow deep in his mind he's, like, worried about what Belichick <laughs> yeah, would think? Some, like, something that's like still that. ringing true to him? But maybe maybe that doesn't come out so much when you're winning. And not that they're a haven't not that they're a bad team by any means. They're still a perennial division winner and playoff team and but they haven't won a Super Bowl in a while, so things get a little testy there and now I mean this year will be the biggest test for them with really no receivers left there and Belichick and Brady getting older and interesting though that Welker would blast his team basically as soon as he left. The other guy to do that, uh Greg Jennings. And he didn't really blast his team as much well, he claimed his team the the Packers brainwashed him. And that in the Packers organization, you are taught to think that every other organization is second rate and that they're the best. And I I really have less of a problem with this one because, I mean, what else is your team going to say? You want to give the environment that they're the best team in the business. But I think this is more about Jennings liking his new home. Maybe he's surprised how much he's liked it there and how everything that Green Bay has said about other organizations being second rate wasn't true. Jennings did say, though, that he questioned Aaron Rodgers' leadership and he thinks he's more of a me person. Now, this was a while ago and he's kind of backed off that a little bit, but it's a little strange that, uh, I guess it's not strange, it's human nature to be mad at the people that kind of disrespected you and passed on you, but. Packers fans are into this. They're all about, they're done with Jennings. Yeah, I guess you know, so. I've seen some tweets like, is anyone else having a lot of fun hating Greg Jennings? <laughs> so they turned on him quick. Yeah, yeah, that's all it takes. And he turned on them quick. Jersey. Yeah. yeah. All right, my second thing, Dan, you got a wife, Mrs. Castro. I do, right? yeah, and uh, a daughter, right? And uh, they look at you to provide for them certain things, sure, you know, food and and home and, and things like that, and you work hard. Well, imagine this, you know, there's a little bit of pressure, you know, you're like, oh man, you know, I really want to get. Get Molly something nice, and you're you're walking around Walmart, and you're <laughs> in kind of a moment of desperation, you throw a baby doll in your pocket, and you're just gonna walk out of Walmart with it, you know? Okay. Backfires. You get outside the door, you get tackled by a state trooper, arrested, you know, thrown in the slammer. You gotta call Mrs. Caster up, say, "Honey, I made a mistake. I Come stole pick a me doll. up. I stole a doll for Molly. It was really cute." <laughs> And she comes to pick you up and uh, pays your bail. Things are things are tense at home for a while. And then it's your day in court. And you're you're not probably not gonna go to jail for this, you know, maybe right, pay right. a fine, you know, be embarrassed. And you look over at the jury and who's sitting there but LeBron James. <laughs> King is on the jury. <laughs> How would you feel about that? I I've been on a jury. I've actually served on a jury for a murder, uh, double attempted murder trial. Was there any celebrities on the jury with you? There was not. No. And did you convict? They, we did actually. Yeah. yeah. They ask you questions like, "Do you know a police officer?" and uh, "Do you recognize the the uh, defendant?" And if you said yes, that was your ticket out of jury duty. So why didn't you? I don't know. I didn't mind. He got me out of work. I got paid from work to be there. It was kind of cool to see the process and everything like that. Uh, Yeah, so a lot of people... There was a weather girl, actually. A local weather girl was in the jury pool when they were before doing the jury selection. 
and her, she said when it came her turn to talk and get interviewed by the two lawyers, is she said, uh, yeah, I can't be in this. I recognize the girl. I recognize her because we ran a story on her when this story first came out. Mm. And whether or not that was true, who knows? But she, you got to take her word for it, I guess. And she works in the news, and they kind of ask you, "Well, is this going to affect your opinion on it?" She was from what the the Channel Two News team. I think two or four. It, it's uh, Lindsay Schwartzwalder or something. She's got mm. some long German last name, but uh, yeah. And they are like, "Okay, you're excused then." If you think you remember her, because they basically ask you, "Well." Based on what you reported, have you already made up your mind in this case type thing? Yep, guilty. Yeah. yeah. So she's, okay, you're free to go. We don't want you. Well, um, oh, so my, my point is, if, like, you can't be a news person or you can't, like, have heard of a, you can't know a cop, how is it okay? It's not. They dismissed him. Oh, okay. Yeah, he didn't. I was going to say. <laughs> he that didn't make it. Even he, if the lawyers wanted him there, I can't yeah, imagine the judge would want that scene in the courtroom. He got there and he was gone by 10.30 a.m. Okay, so he, he took a book down just in case. I guess the 24-hour DJ he employs did not go down with him. He may, I guess he figured that'd be a bit much <laughs> to bring his own personal DJ. Yeah. You know, that would have been really classic LeBron if he went down to jury duty with his DJ, DJ and his DJ started setting up. Sure. Please stop bumping into the tables. I know in our jury duty, you got to go through metal detectors and stuff. So he would have had a hard time getting all that stuff through. <laughs> my, my last thing this week is uh, from an irrelevant team, basically. And I'm a Bills fan, so I know irrelevant football teams. And the Panthers have maybe the two coolest videos of the week to go seek out. The first one's just kind of fun. And if you want to like football players and you, you want your athletes to be people, uh, I don't know what to search for. Search for Panthers Waffle House. And the Panthers running back crew apparently was at a Waffle House, and they put some... Uh, oldies on the jukebox and it's just the, the panthers running backs like just singing and dancing having a good time in this waffle like house. d'angelo williams yeah and, yeah it's on yeah. d'angelo williams's facebook oh okay so that's another way to maybe seek it out but just kind of a funny thing and it humanizes these millionaires i mean first of all they're at like an ihop or something so right i don't big week for waffle house the yeah. Braves are 13 and 0 since they opened a waffle house in their really? stadium. yeah yeah someone on reddit made a comment they said i i'm not sure what's more amusing the fact that like they're singing in a waffle house or that they're in a waffle house in the middle of the day and not stoned like he said who goes to a waffle house it's in the middle of the day anyway and the other video is really cool it's a really sweet thing it's a make-a-wish thing the panthers took this kid i i don't know what was wrong with him exactly but uh enough to get him on the make-a-wish list and he was the honorary assistant coach for the day and it's a really nice heartwarming sweet video so seek that out that is on NFL Panthers 07. Is that really their official? It's probably not their official. Uh, if you search for Carolina Panthers Make-A-Wish on YouTube, you'll find it. It's a real nice video. It's a kid in a wheelchair. Uh, they make him the honorary associate head coach for the day. And as far as compensation, they tell them he can eat as many hot dogs as he wanted while there. That was his uh, – that's how he – what he signed on the dotted line for. So real nice story. All right, real quickly, last thing for the week. Tell me what you think of this trade, Don. <laughs> uh, f- junior hockey forward X, junior hockey goalie X, and a 12th round pick to Team B for a 12th round pick. Okay. Now, I, I know who this is because we talked about this a we little did. bit off the air. 
This might have been funnier had we not. But, uh, yeah, if that was a real NFL, NHL, NBA trade, I would think, okay, that the team trading the player away is making them eat like a huge salary. But this is junior, so they make junior a Junior hockey stipend. player Jake Gilmore. I know that Of name. Kingston was traded along with his buddy Blake Richard in a conditional 12th round pick in 2015 to Niagara for their 12th round pick in 2015. Jake Gilmore is the son of NHL Hockey Hall of Famer Doug Gilmore, okay. who is the team's GM. So uh, he traded his son. His father traded his son and got less in return. Right. His son spent last season with the Brampton Junior B Bombers, where he picked up eight assists in 43 games. The, what, so what is it, OHL? Uh, it, yeah, his son wasn't in the OHL last year. He was in the league below. Oh, okay. Didn't do too great, so maybe this is an opportunity for him to get out from under his dad and have a chance to succeed. Yeah, in the it, that's got to be it. Yeah. I, I can't think of anything else that would be. Unless they just can't. Pretty cutthroat, though. Yeah, no kidding. Peace out, son. I, I want to say there's a. I've heard of players before, maybe even hockey players, that have coaches and they don't want to play, or maybe NBA or college basketball players they don't want to play for their father because of that exact thing they don't they want they don't want to if they get too much playing time it's because their dad's in the team if they don't get enough playing time it's because dad's riding them too hard so actually i think my brother shared with me that someone on his team Stu wilson who's the son of the rit maybe that's head coach maybe that's the story I'm had of. said that the reason he didn't go play for his dad was because if i played a lot it would be because my dad's the coach and if i didn't play a lot it'd be because my dad's, dad's the coach. coach right so it's kind of a no win for everyone so he went to yale and won the national championship <laughs> all right we're going to take a break and come back with rich eisen from the nfl network Our first guest is from Staten Island, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Michigan. He was a staff writer at the Staten Island Advance and the Chicago Tribune before moving to television in Redding, California. He spent seven years at ESPN as a sports center anchor be- before becoming the first on-air talent at the NFL Network. He is a published author, hosts a podcast with over 10 million downloads, has hosted a reality TV show, and runs an electric 40-yard dash. He is making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the NFL Network's main man, Rich Eisen. How are you doing today, Rich? Uh, I'm, I'm great. I'm better for hearing that uh, fight song. So you know how to butter up your guest. I can clearly tell <laughs> that you know how to set the stage with a great fight song and uh, a quality parsing of the Wikipedia uh, biography <laughs> that's up there. So I appreciate the fact that you didn't read the Wikipedia biography when uh, somebody had uh, inserted the fact that I was known as Rich White Mamba Eisen because <laughs> it was up there for about three weeks before somebody took that down. Is that the most outrageous thing that someone's put into your Wikipedia? I think so, and I, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't check it all that often, but, um, you know, uh, anyone could do anything, I guess, on the Internet. And uh, if it's on the internet, I, I think you, ha- you would have to believe it. Would yeah, you say something? Absolutely. You know, I had a little, uh, I had a little Michigan run-in. I wanted to tell you about this. Uh, what is that? This spring. Well, my brother plays hockey at Yale, and um, after a disastrous weekend in Atlantic City, they found themselves on the bubble. You know, the bubble for the NCAA yeah. tournament. 
And if it was not for a Michigan loss to Notre Dame in the very last college hockey game before the NCAA tournament, they would mm-hmm. not have won the national championship. They would have missed the tournament. Michigan would have uh-huh. won instead. You know what? That's uh, Red Berenson took one for your brother's team, I guess. He did. You know? 23 it, straight is there any years. Weekend they were in. in Atlantic City that is not disastrous? <laughs> not for Yale hockey, apparently. Oh, they, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, usually those two words are that's sort of redundant in my experience with, with AC. I've only been there once. I saw Pearl Jam at the Borgata, and it was great. So, Well, I mean, uh, I grew up in Staten Island, as you mentioned, so um, going to Atlantic City was a rite of passage in many ways, you know, so, but uh, not too many times I would say that it was a, oh, a, uh, a, be- a beauteous weekend in Atlantic City. There are many adjectives uh, that Atlantic City engenders, and usually disastrous is one of them. <laughs> well, not disastrous is the past uh, almost 10 years now that you've spent at the NFL Network, and over there you, you've done so many different things, and one thing that you've done quite well, obviously, having over 10 million downloads for your podcast is podcasting. And I, I wonder, when you went in, when you started the podcast and you, you, you went into the medium and began doing it, a couple things. One, did you ever think it would get to the point where over 10 million people would download it? And B, did you, did you think you would enjoy it as much as you seem to? No, um, I guess uh, no and no. Uh, I mean, I, I started it, um, I, I mean, I don't really remember having much of an epiphany where I thought, you know, I, I should do this. Um, but um, I saw how much fun um, others were having doing it. And, you know, the nature of what I do for a living um, is to set up others to make their points on television. And on occasion, if there's enough time in the segment to inject mine. And um, so to have a forum in which um, I can talk about stuff that I want to talk about and in the time frame that I wish to discuss it without any time constraints. And the people to whom I have the, with whom I have these discussions are at my discretion to have on. Um, it's pretty cool. And, um, you know, it was the first one that the, the NFL uh, network ever attempted to the point where it's now called NFL Media Group, actually. And um, the fact that it has over 10 million downloads, I, I, don't, I, I mean, I never even thought about the, a, a number I wanted to hit. But um, we're about to celebrate three years on the air. First week of 2010 season is when we went on the is when uh, it first went up. And it's just evolved into just a, a boatload of fun. And uh, I, I really do enjoy doing it. And as you know, with, with doing yours, uh, it's pretty neat the number of people that you can come across and have varying conversations with and and um, take the conversation in whatever direction you wish, and um, that's that's a blessing. It's kind of an interesting day because one of the podcasts that you recently did was an interview with, with Brian Banks, whose story is well known now, and he's going to actually play his first NFL game of sorts today. Uh, with the uh, Thursday night football game between Atlanta and Cincinnati. What, what about that, that Banks podcast and now ultimately him getting on an NFL field? How does, that, how does it make you feel to have given him a platform to tell his story to football fans and now be able to, in your, in your I guess, I don't want to know if I want to call it your day job, but now in the other hats that you wear, as you wear many, you can kind of now approach the story in a different way and, and report about his actions on the field and, and see how his career may or may not develop. Well, Brian uh, Banks had his story told um, almost immediately after he was exonerated. 
um, when he was um, called by the Seahawks. Um, Pete Carroll, who was originally looking at him uh, to go to USC 10 years prior when he was uh, wrongfully accused of sexual assault. And um, so he told that story to 60 Minutes, and uh, I believe he went on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and other shows. And, um, you know, my producer of the podcast, Chris Law, was, you know, pounding on me saying we should have this guy on. And personally, I thought his story had already been told. Um, but it, it's just, it's just too fascinating a story to sit there and go, well, you know, it's already been out there and, and what's to discuss about it further. So when he was coming into Los Angeles, we were all over having him on the show. And for a guy who's never played an NFL down, uh, the podcast with him was the most downloaded podcast featuring a player. And that includes Tom Brady. That includes... Uh, Aaron Rodgers coming on to talk either Packers as he did the previous year or just a few weeks ago to uh, analyze Game of Thrones, um, which we had him on to do because he's such a Game of Thrones freak just like me. Uh, Brian Banks, the podcast with him, was is the most downloaded podcast I've ever had in the almost three years that just centers around the players, the featured guest. And clearly the reason for that is his story and how people are uh, rooting for him, and how the human drama aspect of sports is still a major draw. I know that so many people watch sports because they're either, you know, either gambling on it, I mean, I don't have my head in the sand, or there's a fantasy aspect, or there are some people who, who like the social aspect of it. There are people who do enjoy the competition, but the human drama side of sports is still such a draw and such an attraction for people and brian's story is at the top of that list entering the nfl season i think and because uh, every other storyline that i could think of does involve players changing teams or adversity happening with players that have you know been arrested and things of that nature so um uh, I, I am rooting for him. So is the rest of the free football world. And the way that he told the story on, on the podcast was so uh, calm and, and so inspiring through his desire to just live and get revenge by living well. Um, and in some cases, turning the other cheek. It really is just a, a combination of all things that are good, and that's why everybody's rooting for Brian tonight and beyond. I would love to see him make this team and get what he what he deserves, which is a shot in the NFL. You mentioned that his appearance was the most downloaded, featuring a player, and maybe that means that you know he had eighty thousand downloads, and the next best player at seventy nine thousand. I don't know, but do you think that sometimes maybe? the player interviews don't download as well because at times we can almost answer the questions for the players. And, you know, well, you know, that's why you've got to ask the proper questions, my friend. You know, that's why you've got to make sure that you don't get the rote answer. And that's why, I mean, you hear so many people ask questions that uh, can be answered with a yes or a no, or you have so many uh, interviewers who don't even ask a question. They just give a statement and stop talking and hope that through just the general cadence of an interview, the interviewee understands that the silence means that they talk now. So there's a certain art to doing it, 
Um, listening is a very difficult um, thing to learn, and it's part of what we do for a living that um, that not a lot of a uh, lot of folks can grasp. Uh, I just spoke with Mariucci on the last one of the last podcasts I did, the one with Larry David who came on. It was the, that was the one that put us over ten million, and the back half of that conversation was with Mariucci after we played the full enshrinees roundtable that's held on on the Hall of Fame game day every single year during the Hall of Fame weekend when all of the enshrinees are through the the gauntlet of getting your jacket, making your speech, and getting all your family in and out of town, and they're terribly relaxed. They're at the most relaxed and relieved and joyous part of their weekend, and you sit them down in the auditorium in downtown Canton for about 4,000 attendees, and I emceed, I've emceed that a couple of times, including last year, and I put the full audio on the podcast last year, and it was so popular that we did it again this year with Mariucci emceeing it. And Steve pointed out at one point that, you know, he didn't know when there was a silence in between some of the conversations with his, with his, uh, with the enshrinees, whether to, you know, say something or stop talking to let the subject, the interviewee, keep talking. And that's a very difficult part of what we do is like, when do you know when to interject yourself? Because uh, if you do, you might cut off something that's about to be said that's compelling. Or do you need to say something to fill the void to keep the conversation going? Or do you need to say something to prod somebody to say something more compelling? It's really an art form in my mind. And that's part of the thing that I love about the podcast more than anything. Because on television, when you only have a three-and-a-half, four-minute segment, you know you really can't say something back to your analyst because there's three other analysts that have to say something before the commercial break gets in, and that's part of what we do. That's uh, that you have to understand when to put your foot on the gas pedal and when not, and it all starts with asking the right question. Yeah, and it can be really difficult, especially like with what we're doing, where we're not. I can't see you, so I have to kind of. It's almost like there's a feel there. You have to kind of feel when. All right, when is he done? When is he taking a pause? And and maybe that's why. Do you prefer having people in when you can have them as opposed to doing the phone interviews? Well, maybe? the thing that I, 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 I that drives me a little batty is when you have more than one person. You know, like on the television programs when there's like a four box. Uh, and the only thing missing is Alice the maid in the middle with the Brady Bunch set up. And, you know, the person who, one of the people in the box is somebody who's directly to your left on on set, and they're looking directly into the camera. And you can't, you're, you're trying to have a conversation, but there's really no way you can mix it up and make it sound natural when, okay, analyst A, who's in studio to your left, makes a point, even though he's responding to something that you're saying, he can't look at you because he's got to look directly into the camera because he's in a four box with two guys who are looking directly in the camera, listening at various remotes around the country. And, you know, uh, there are many times where those work. Uh, It was difficult a few weeks ago when Rosie Greer, the last remaining member of the Fearsome Foursome, uh, who's above ground, the last living member, came in to talk about Deacon Jones's passing on the day that Deacon did pass. And then we had Warren Sapp and Michael Irvin on remote. You know, we had Michael Irvin on remote um, because obviously you need their, their points of view. And I was just, it was really difficult to get everybody to mix it up together 
because Rosie didn't know when the two guys on remote wanted to talk. The two guys on remote didn't know when Rosie was going to talk. And here I am trying to get them all to mix it up together. And just when I thought it wasn't going to work, it did. So what do I know, right? Right. Um, but the thing that I'm confused about is I thought you had a camera in my house. I thought that's what you, you fixed up with your podcast. You don't have surveillance for your... <laughs> no, your, I, I don't have any stuff. surveillance. We See, always... that's, that's where you're missing out, man. You've got to get the surveillance. I, I just, you know, but... Um, kind of like Howard Stern. That's just up to you, how you want to spend your time. It's kind of like how Howard Stern has, like, the camera in the Whack Packers house so you can, like, keep an eye on Eric the Midget or something. Something along those lines. Let's Something talk, akin to that, yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the league. You know, when, it, when, you, when you think about the NFL, you think of it's just a league with money and it's just it, everything right, right? I mean, if we were to talk about the NHL, we could go on and on about all the disasters that go on in that somewhat of a garage league. But when you think about the NFL, you think about all the things that it has going for it. But there are a couple things maybe going against it. And, and it seems like you're really good at, at kind of thinking about those things and thinking of unique ways. And a couple of them, one of them that, I think interest, might interest you the most is kind of what everything that NFL Network does great seems to be creating one of the problems that the NFL has, and that is maybe not getting fans out for the game day field experience because we can sit at home and we have the NFL Network, we have the HGTVs, we have all the ways where we can consume this product from our house, and maybe that's an issue for the NFL. What do you think the NFL needs to do to kind of get more people into their stadiums or, or kind of prevent this problem that it seems like they're trying to get in front of? Well, I did a podcast with Jed York uh, a couple of months ago, the um, the uh, CEO of the San Francisco 49ers. And um, I spoke with him on the day that San Francisco was awarded Super Bowl L, Super Bowl Large, number 50 that's coming up, the golden anniversary of the Super Bowl, which is going to be in Northern California, at the new Field of Jeans, as they're nicknaming it right now, the Levi Stadium. And Levi Stadium is not in downtown San Francisco. It's in Santa Clara, Santa Clara right. right near the San Francisco 49ers uh, practice facility. And right down the road from the San Jose airport and a mere stone's throw from Silicon Valley. And they, what Jed said that they're planning to put in this stadium and how fans are going to be able to watch the game in the stadium with second windows open, which is definitely the cutting edge. Uh, anytime I watch a major sporting event, I always have Twitter open. Now, there's no question that it's a two-window event for me when I'm watching a major sporting event. And they're going to tap into that sort of thing. 4K um, uh, capabilities within the stadium, uh, replays that you can get on your on your handheld device from your seat. Um, follow your fantasy team from your seat. These are the things that um, you know. Obviously, having uh, a quality weather day will help in that regard. Now, I don't know how you're going to really follow your fantasy team when you've got you know Gore-Tex on if you're in 10 degrees. <laughs> but um, these are the things that I think the NFL is going for, and they're already you know sensing where they're talking about you know, lowering preseason ticket prices and things of that nature. You know, I know the commissioner is definitely aware of what's happening with fans uh, rather than taking 600 bucks and spending it on tickets and parking and, and various uh, concessions for a family of four. They'd rather take that money, 
throw it into a 50-some-odd-inch television set, throw it on the wall, and be set for an entire football season. Um, and, and I know the league is, is, is on that. And what Jed York said on the podcast, I think, is exactly how the league is planning to uh, address it. You know, I'm a big Saints fan. I think you're a big Jets fan. That's right, right? Well, I'm from New York City, so I, follow, I grew up following both New York teams. Okay. So I've been kind of lucky for a long time. I've always felt like the Saints have been a very likable team, especially at the, at the beginning of the, of the Peyton era with when there was the kind of angle of, you know, this being a real representative team for the area and helping them rebound. And there was a little bit maybe taken away from that last year with Bounty Gate, although I kind of always was on the side of the team. I kind of didn't buy it all the way. But not every fan base is as lucky in some senses where sometimes you'll have a team where there's some guys on the team that just they're not great guys either. As you mentioned earlier, they get themselves out, off the tr- into trouble off the field with some kind of legal issue or as we've seen this preseason with Riley Cooper maybe making a remark that's not right and then you have to go to the stadium and potentially root for that player or that team. What do you think about the position that fans are in when it comes to rooting for players or teams that maybe aren't filled with the best guys? Because as technology gets bigger, as Twitter gets more, we learn more and more about these guys. It's harder to keep away from, from, their, from what they're like. Well, I, it's, it's up to the fan. To, you know, I don't tell a fan how to, how to root and how they choose to spend their dollars and their, and their emotional capital. Um, if you don't like a player, and that means you're no, no longer following the team, or you, you don't think the team has handled the player discipline properly, then it's their prerogative, his or her prerogative, to take their, the, that, that team's jersey and throw them out and uh, either find another team and get those jerseys or not follow the sport anymore. I would never sit here and tell a fan what to do and what not to do or blame technology for the, for the problem. You know, you never shoot the messenger. Um, we do know things that players are involved in and up to more than ever in real time now. Um, from you know Gronkowski uh, hitting somebody in the um, in the nether regions uh, on a stage in in Vegas to obviously what Riley Cooper said at a um, a concert and the story of uh, that's still not coming out yet is why it took a full month for that video to come out and how long Cooper knew about it and what was being held over him and that's part of this story too. That's obviously uh, taken a back seat because of what Riley said and how he said it and what it means to the team moving forward. But we'll find out. I mean, as, just as we're going to find out in the coming days when A-Rod steps into the batter's box in Yankee Stadium for the first time since all of this craziness, we'll hear, we'll hear what the fan reaction is there. But when a player comes back and the longer that that player stands in the batter's box or suits up, and hits a home run or scores a touchdown or stops on a third down. That's what I was always saying about Manti Teo. Everyone was, was really wringing their hands from January all the way till draft day until he went to San Diego, which is a perfect spot for him to be out of the media spotlight. If he was in anywhere in the Northeast, we'd be talking about Manti Teo up, down, left, and right right now on, uh, on the media circuit because the local media would keep that fire burning quite a bit. Uh, everyone was wringing their hands about Manti Teo. What, what's the team going to say to him in his locker room? And how's the fans going to deal with it? And the bottom line is Manti Teo, the, if there is any sort of backlash to him, which I doubt, but if there is, the minute he stops somebody on third and short in the hole, it's all over. People will cheer for him. So there's a fickle nature for fans, but I'm never, ever going to castigate a fan for doing that. That's why they're called fans. They're fanatics. 
and um, and fans like that put roofs over heads for people like me. So however they choose to get their information and then use it to decide how to root for a team and a fan, I will never, ever criticize in that regard, unless it's a profane or threatening to some player's family and safety, then obviously that fan needs to take a chill pill and or, you know, have a peace officer visit their house. <laughs> take a, um, take a step other back. than that, uh, fans are on their own to do as they wish. The Sportscasters here finishing up with Rich Eisen from the NFL Network at Rich Eisen on Twitter. I was lucky enough to talk to Mike Tirico about Steve Gleason's punt block, one of my favorite moments as a fan. Yeah, I was there too. I yeah. was there too that night with Marshall Falk, the native son of New Orleans. It was an incredible night. Unbelievable. And, and someday I'd like to talk to uh, Nance about Tracy Porter's interception. I'd like to talk to you about maybe what you remember from the night that the Saints beat the Colts in the Super Bowl. A couple things I remember from your coverage that day is I remember you interviewing Tracy Porter with his daughter on the set, and then I remember also Kim Kardashian and her mom kind of oh, crashing yeah. the party a little bit. Anything specific you remember from that night you can tell? Well, just with Kim Kardashian fan? coming to the set, it was funny because we had Reggie Bush on the set, and Kim was about five feet away behind the set, and uh, one of our producers, Bartia Shireas, who's now with Fox Sports 1, unfortunately, he's one of the best producers I've ever worked with, um, he walked up to Kim and said, do you want to go on the set? And she sort of hemmed and hawed, and he said she went, I don't know if I should, as she began taking steps towards the <laughs> set. And then she appeared on it, and Reggie was cool about it, or you know, uh, seemed to be cool with it. And I sort of lost my mind. I'm like, yes, this is the best thing ever. And I got people on Twitter or people you know, blowing me up a little bit, saying that I... I was acting like a little schoolboy around her and totally drooling all over her. But to be honest with you, what I'm thinking, as soon as you walked on the set, I'm thinking that this interview has gone from being of interest to um, sports blogs and sports outlets that want to get the Reggie Bush post-game interview. We got him merely moments after the confetti. We were even picking confetti off of his jersey that he still had on over his pads. And we went from people of, of the sports world being interested in that to now the TMZs of the world would want. And I'm like, you know, I hope they're in the truck, which they did. They put the NFL Network bug up right away. This is the way my mind's working on the air. I was not like, oh, yeah, here's Kim Kardashian. She's so hot. And I'm like, no, this is great. Now this interview has taken a totally new meaning and a whole different world of interest that's watching NFL Network or maybe interested in what we're doing. So that was pretty wild. But, you know, obviously – uh, the the um, the way that the first half ended, where uh, the Saints got a big break with the way that the Colts really didn't handle somehow some way the last two minutes. Yeah, they bailed the out first, three runs the first right? half, yeah. and then uh, obviously the way Sean Payton began the second half was truly mind blowing. Um, and and uh, and then the pick that that was new. The I know I called Marshall the the native son of New Orleans. Really, Peyton Manning obviously is in terms of the football Mount Rushmore. Although Marshall is, uh, you know, one of the greatest running backs to play the game, and he he wears his New Orleans, um, he wears his New Orleans roots with pride. I mean, Archie Manning's son is the one who threw a pick six to to send the uh, the fans of of his hometown into a, in a stratosphere that they'll never forget. Um, that was quite a moment. And I remember Sean Payton coming up after the game. He visited the set, I believe, along with Drew Brees together um, and um, slapped my hand so hard, and I extended it for a handshake, 
and he slapped it so hard that it stung for the rest of the interview. Like, I couldn't even feel my hand for the five, six minutes that he was on the air. And that's part of the thing, job that I love, man. I, I mean, uh, the network has been great all ten years. This is Eric Weinberger's vision, our executive producer, and everyone else that's been part of the, the team to set us up that we are on the field right after the Super Bowl. And we have gotten some of the best interviews right after. I mean, we're sitting there, confetti's all over our desk, and players come off the podium and then walk over to us. And we've just been blessed to have people come right after the game. Uh, this past year, Ed Reed came moments after winning his first Super Bowl in his hometown stadium and started crying. Yep, another New guy. You know, you can't beat that. You really can't beat that. So, uh, I've been lucky in general by being uh, the guy who's sitting there with Hall of Famers to my left and Hall of Fame individuals like Mariucci to my left, and and getting these interviews right after these big games. Uh, and that Saints Colts uh, Super Bowl is one of them. Yeah, you mentioned Manning from New Orleans, intercepted by Tracy Porter from Port Allen, Louisiana. It's pretty incredible, right? Yeah, you can't absolutely. script that stuff. No. Listen, uh, Rich Eisen, thank you so much for doing this. I kept you already a few minutes more than I asked for. And I, I don't want to take advantage of that. I could do this all day, obviously. But thank you so much for the time. It's at Rich Eisen on Twitter. Obviously, he's on the NFL Network. The Rich Eisen podcast is on iTunes and all over the place. 10 million downloads, so obviously people know where to find it. Thank you so much again for doing this. My pleasure. You take care, bud. Thanks to Rich Eisen for being on the show today. Clearly slumming it on the sportscasters. We appreciate <laughs> that. His podcast has 10 million downloads, and I would think that with the buzz from having Eisen on our podcast, we should probably crack the 40 or 50 download mark. <laughs> so thanks to Mr. Eisen for being on the show. Uh, book club update, the last one of this kind. Difficult men behind the scenes of a creative revolution. From The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad by Brett Martin. I spoke with Brett yesterday, and that interview will air on Season 3, Episode 22 of the podcast on Tuesday into Wednesday. He was a great dude, a great interview. It was a really good book. I'm glad I read it, especially the timing of it. I basically read it in between the passing of James Gandolfini and the start of the final season of Breaking Bad, yep. which is really the perfect time to read a book that is mostly about the Sopranos and Breaking Bad and a couple of other shows of the like. Uh, really a quality uh, conversation with a quality guy. I'm looking forward to you guys hearing it. And if you need something to do this weekend, I definitely recommend uh, picking Difficult Men up. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on all of the ebook platforms like the Nook and the Kindle and right. the iPad. And, of course, at a bookstore near you. All right, last interview of the week is one that I did on Wednesday as well, which was yesterday, with our friend Stuart Mandel, who I apologize right away to for only reaching out to when the newest college football yeah. scandal breaks. I said, I don't know if I can promise this, but I'd like to think I can promise that next time we ask you to be on, it's because of, I don't know, college football? We can follow through with that. All right, well, so we'll try to make that happen. But we'll be right back with uh, Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated.
Our next guest is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and is a graduate of Northwestern University. He has worked for the Cincinnati Inquirer, ABC Sports Online, and ESPN The Magazine. Today, he's a senior writer at SI.com, covering the national college football beat. He also contributes for Sports Illustrated The Magazine. He's making his fifth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Stuart Mandel. How are you doing today, Stuart? Good, Steve. How are you? You know, I was thinking, it's ridiculous how it seems like every time I reach out to you, it's because of Scandal X. Like, I was talking to my partner, like, do we ever book college football interviews when there isn't a scandal? Like, why is it like that? It's not like that for any other sport. It's not like I only book baseball guests or uh, hockey or football or any other sport. It just seems like with this sport, it, it just seems like it's always about the scandal for some reason, and that kind of annoys me because I love watching college football. I love college football. It's actually been a pretty quiet offseason up until now. Um, you know, uh, things were really slow. There were no uh, teams, you know, being investigated or new teams being investigated, and, you know, I think the fact that Johnny Manziel going to a crap party constituted news in the summer shows you how slow it was, but... Um, you know, now that there's a situation that could actually jeopardize his eligibility, I think we've got a uh, legitimate story now. In your mind, how, how, let's see, how do I put this? Uh, in your mind, uh, how nervous uh, would you be if you were Johnny Manziel in regards to your eligibility right now? Um, I think, you know, only he knows exactly what what he did or didn't do, and whether it's um, whether the NCAA is going to be able to figure that out. Um, I'd be nervous, though, if I were Texas A&M or Texas A&M fan because while none of those stories, uh, you know, I think there's been three stories now involving three separate dealers, um, there, well, none of them, you know, had, like, the smoking gun. There was enough detail in there that it's pretty obvious to anybody that he took money to sign autographs, especially the one where, you know, a dealer flat out came out and said a number, 7,500, and, and Joe Schaff reviewed a video, and he's talking about, talking about how they're going to cover it up. So, you know, whereas I've seen some other schools now, like South Carolina come out, and already they've already cleared their players, Texas A&M's lawyered up, which tells me that they um, anticipate this being kind of a long, drawn-out investigation. Now, we've just seen an example of a penalty handed out in Major League Baseball, the player appealed and he was able to play. Is I should probably know this, but if if the NCAA does lay a penalty on uh, Johnny and, and he does appeal it, will he be able to play as that process works out, or how would that work? Um, that's a good question. No, it kind of goes the opposite. Okay. You get, you get declared ineligible and you can apply for reinstatement. Um, so... Let's try to think of an example of that. Um, well, well, what happened yeah. with um, Rhett Bomar from Oklahoma, for example, when he was ruled out? Did well, he just you know, take that, that penalty that and go away? Oklahoma kicked him off the team. Okay. You know, I mean, they just said uh, he would have probably been suspended for a considerable amount of time, but they didn't even wait for that. They kicked him off the team. Gotcha. You know, with the um, – with the well, I'll give you an example. A.J. Green um, – that, if you remember, he ended up being suspended four games, but they didn't, uh, the NCAA didn't actually resolve the investigation until after I think he'd already missed the first game. So that was Georgia voluntarily sitting him in anticipation 
that he might be ruled ineligible. And once he was, you know, technically you apply for reinstatement and they say, okay, you can be reinstated after four games. But so, and then the one game he already sat counted towards that. Gotcha. So, I mean, the one thing with, with, uh, with Manziel that just, it's come up all summer is just, it seems like this kid just isn't using very good judgment in all kinds of aspects. And I wonder, you know, is Texas saying I'm kind of getting fed up? I, I mean, I, I don't, I, it just, I don't want to, I don't want to convict the guy. You know what I mean? Because right now it's just an allegation and an investigation pending. So I don't want to, I don't want to make this assumption that, okay, this is a, but I think I'm to the point where I can safely assume that this kid is guilty over and over again of using bad judgment. Yeah, I think that's pretty safe to say. <laughs> you know, I think the Roy Thompson and Andy Staples features last week shed a lot of light into what's going on behind the scenes there. Um, you know, people could make any assumptions or judgments they wanted based off of a, you know, picture of him at an NBA game or, you know, the frat party thing or whatnot, but the Manning Academy and all that, but, you know, nobody actually really knows Johnny Manziel. And look, most of us still don't know him, know him, but those articles kind of shed an interesting light on, you know, his personality and in particular kind of how he got there with his father and his family. And, you know, I think he's a kid who um, has some anger issues, who's got a bit of a reckless, impulsive streak in him, He's actually pretty smart, and, you know, I've talked to him. He can be very engaging, and um, but then he it seems, you know, like that anecdote on the golf course, like he can just kind of go into a rage in any moment. The most interesting thing to me when all this autograph stuff came out was that uh, separately, both when I went there in March and then when Andy interviewed him for that story, to both of us separately, he expressed how big of a stress all the autograph requests, like of all the things he's had to deal with since he became a celebrity, constant autograph requests and autograph hounds seem to be the biggest issue. He even told the story of being, you know, approached in an airport, much like was described in Darren Revelle's story, being approached in an airport by somebody, you know, who was looking for him to sign a whole bunch of stuff. And so given that, knowing that, you know, you could see where he might, out of frustration, um, just kind of make like a spontaneous decision, like, all right, this guy is... Um, bothering me, let me just get this over with, and if I can make some money off it, you know, like, almost like he's entitled to that, because he's had to deal with such harassment, or whatever, he, you know, this has taken up so much uh, time, that like, you know, why shouldn't I get paid for something, something like this? Where do you kind of come down, and it's a separate issue, and it's a, it's a it's a crazy thing probably to get into, but just kind of where do you feel about the idea that the NCAA, you know, is free to to do what they they like in terms of a uh, with these with these players and you know it's only his autograph it's not necessarily a benefit it's literally him signing his name like do you think this is something that the NCAA needs to assess in the future allowing these guys maybe to I mean where are we at with this in general as we get as this business gets bigger and bigger and the NCAA makes more and more money like maybe a better question is what did you think of Jay Billis yesterday and the point that he was trying to make with the with the searches that he did on the NCAA's website. Yeah, it was a valid point. I mean, I've long thought that, you know, while I think I, I don't agree with people who go to the extreme of that these kids are being exploited and that they, you know, I mean, no, you know, a Stanford football player who's getting a $58,000 a year scholarship is not being exploited. He's getting a tremendous, tremendous uh, 
opportunity and investment that any of us would dream of. Um, however, I've always had a problem with you can Michigan can sell you know a million Denard Robinson jerseys and he never sees a penny of it. Um, you know, there's a difference in my mind between the whole should players be paid argument, which I don't really agree with, and should players, you know, if, if somebody's profiting off their own specific likeness, are they entitled to part of that? I think that's a morally a pretty obvious answer. And so what's been interesting is, you know, this is something that has, I think, always been on the back burner, but in the last couple of years, um, there's been a lot of heightened awareness of it. Jay Bills is one of the people who's kind of leading that charge. Uh, there's been other, you know, prominent media people who spent a lot of time on it. You've got the Ed O'Bannon case, which I think people are becoming more and more aware of if they weren't already. And so what's happening right now with Donnie Mandel is kind of all of that. You know, it's like the perfect storm. The most prominent player in college football is caught up in a, you know, player likeness issue. And uh, it's interesting to see how much sympathy he's getting and how many people are saying this is ridiculous that you might get in trouble for this. I didn't hear any of that or for the most part, didn't hear any of that uh, three years ago when Terrell Pryor and the Ohio State players got in trouble for the memorabilia for tattoos, which is really the same exact rule. You know, it's the same exact issue. I just think that there's been so much attention paid to this issue, and also just so many people have been subject to never-ending headlines about this conference has signed this $3 billion television deal, and this coach just got a raise to $4 million a year. That we just I don't think there was a a specific tipping point, but it does seem like the critical mass has reached a point where the money is so staggering that it's hard to be too outraged at a player. The notion that a player might, you know, make a few thousand dollars off his autograph. Do you think Johnny Manziel plays this year at this point with what you know about the situation? Um, that's that's the million dollar question right now. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be hard for the NCAA prove that he received money. Uh, but I would also be surprised if nothing comes of it at all. I, you know, the NCAA, um, pretty arbitrary, what they might end up deciding what to do. So my prediction is he'll play, but we could have what's going to happen, I think, is there's going to be a really sticky situation when the season starts. Probably will not be resolved yet. And A&M will have to decide, given what they know, whether they want to risk playing him, and therefore, you know, if he does get declared ineligible, we'll have to forfeit those games or sit him until he's cleared. And because of that, I do think he could, he might start the season not playing. I know it's a somewhat cynical approach to this, but am I kind of, am I overly cynical to assume that one way or another this is going to be uh, settled by the time week three of the season rolls around and it's time for that big game against Alabama to be played, a time when the NCAA's partners could be affected by Manziel's appearance in or not in a game? I do think that the NCAA will be under considerable pressure to resolve before that. Um, you know, theoretically, the people doing the investigation, you know, the enforcement department, are not supposed to be subject to those kind of market pressures. But that's one of the things that came out in the fallout from the uh, Miami investigation scandal. You know, the not the actual scandal that Miami did, but you know, the the resulting um, report that the NCA overstepped its bounds and they fired their enforcement director and all sorts of stuff. And uh, you know, SI had a big feature in the spring about 
uh, you know, how, how morale is so low and people are leaving left and right. And um, one of the things that came out in that story is that Mark Emmert, unlike any president before him, has kind of been even personally intervening in some of these things and making it really obvious that, you know, we need to get these guys, we need to hurry this up, um, we need to make a point. So I think they're under considerable pressure here to show that they still have teeth. And that's why I do think, you know, if there's any, if they have any grounds to get him on, I think they'll do it. And I think you're right. I think, uh, yeah, you know, you, you can't wait until week five to figure this all out. You gotta, you know, there's there's too much attention to be placed for that game the third week this season not have a decision reached. I mean, I look at Cam Newton's situation, and I thought it was, you know, if you look back, they didn't get it resolved in time for the Iron Bowl, but they got it resolved in time for the SEC Championship the Monday before the SEC Championship, if I'm not mistaken. So I don't think these people operate in a vacuum. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I Like I said, it's a cynical view, but it just seems to me like there might be someone looking at this saying, you know, if we suspend this kid for two non-conference games, they aren't going to be very high-profile you know, if it's true that they're going to have a hard time, you know, proving something that would declare him ineligible in the long term, it just seems like that would, would play in it in some way. But like I said, that might be cynical. One last thing about this, and then I want to ask you a couple of uh, non-scandal-related questions before we let you go. Um, if he is ruled ineligible and can't play in a worst-case scenario for him, I know he's not eligible for a supplemental draft yet. He would have to wait a whole nother year to be to be drafted, right? So what what options does he have in terms of, of football in that interim? He really wouldn't. You know, I think back is a while ago now, but when Maurice Claret challenged the um, the rule about having to be three years in college, three years before he can declare, um, he initially won the first court ruling, and after that, Mike Williams, the USC receiver, decided to go the same route, and then a higher court overturned it. Well, Antje didn't let Mike Williams back. They said, once you declare, you're gone. And so he spent that next, that would have been a 2004 football season just working out on his own. You know, the, the timing is not such that you could go play in the CFL or, I guess, I mean, I guess you could. I guess that season's still going. I don't know why you would. You know, I think right. there's nothing you can really gain from that. I, if he were to actually lose his eligibility, I assume he would, you know, go work with his, you know, certainly they that family's not lacking for resources to send him to work with the best trainers and the best coaches and, you know, do whatever it takes to get ready for the draft. All right, regular stuff, because we're getting close to, to having some games on there. Uh, Alabama was number one in the, in the first poll. Again, probably fair enough. If we assume that they're the best team going into the season, who are some teams that you think could threaten what is now becoming a pretty solid dynasty for Alabama this year and, and maybe maybe take them out? Well, you know, I think that people in the other parts of the country don't want to hear this, but the biggest challengers to Alabama are in their own conference. You know, once they get to the national title game, as we learned last year, it's hard to stick against them. But, um, you know, so within the SEC, A&M lose Johnny Manziel, obviously, um, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, those teams outside the SEC. I actually think the teams with the best shot are out west. Um, Stanford is going to be outstanding this season. They, you know, had that 12-win season last year when they were breaking a new quarterback. Uh, and it turns out they have a heck of a defense. That defense brings back eight or nine starters, a bunch of guys that played a lot. So uh, I think they're well built. They're actually built a lot like Alabama, which is rare, um, you know, in other parts of the country. Oregon is still, you know, 
still has all that speed, uh, still has Marcus Mariota. The question there, obviously, is whether they can keep it going without Chip Kelly. But just from a strictly personnel-wise, I think, you know, that was the team, if they hadn't stripped up, if they hadn't lost to Stanford last year, that most people thought had the best chance to beat Alabama. Um, Ohio State, you know, a lot of people are kind of putting their hopes on that. I think they're number two in the coaches' poll. I think they're doing very good. I don't think they're at that level yet. You know, now that doesn't mean they couldn't get there by the end of the year, but there's a lot of kind of blind faith that, first of all, it's Urban Meyer's second year, and, you know, he won an Florida in the second year. And just a lot of faith that a lot of really young, you know, guys who are five-star recruits who are not coming entering their uh, redshirt freshman or sophomore season, you know, that they're going to be able to, um, you know, morph into solid starters and all-conference players already and really will be their first full season. If they do, they could be one of the best teams in the country. They're certainly recruiting that way, but my guess is that 2014 is the year Ohio State fields around national title contender. Just as we're getting ready to, to get into the season and get into the the meat of it, we've had this kind of distraction with Manziel. Are there some other stories that would be for someone who's not interested in the off-the-field stuff, some on-the-field stories that people could focus on as teams get ready to play their first games at the end of the month here? Maybe some like position well, battles that are like going the on? Anti, you know, I'm, and we're, I'm doing a story on this that's going to go out next week, um, kind of the anti, anti-Manziel or anti-scandal is, you know, it's kind of snuck up on people, but the revenge of the nerds. Stanford is right. a top-five team now. Northwestern won 10 games last year. Uh, Vanderbilt won nine games. They hadn't done since World War I. Um, you know, Duke went to a bowl game. It's, to me, that's an interesting story to see if they can keep it up. You know, anybody can have a uh, – can rise up and have kind of a flukish run every now and again, but this, they, they all have great coaches right now. And uh, if those coaches stay, and so far there's no you know, reason I think they wouldn't, um, can those programs become annual players on the scene, I guess, is one story I, w- I would keep an eye on. Um, I think Louisville will be very interesting to watch this year because, first of all, obviously Teddy Bridgewater is a fantastic player and there will be a lot of tension on him, but if they're in this weird in-limbo state where they've got one year left in the former Big East Conference, now the American and playing basically something that's not, you know, it's basically a conference USA schedule, or it would have been as of last year. And yet they're in the top 10, and they beat Florida in the Sugar Bowl, and they're so kind of a, you know, they, they kind of have a platform right off the bat to contend for the national title. But I think if they do get to late in the season and they're right in the mix, there's going to be a lot of backlash, much like there was against Boise State. Hey, they haven't played anybody, you know, should they really be ahead of one loss? you know, SEC team or one loss, Big 12 team or whatnot. Northwestern is in this top 25 uh, early here this year. Are you optimistic? Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the, you know, what I was saying before. They, um, they're they not used to those kind of preseason expectations. They're usually overlooked, so it'll be interesting to see how they deal with that. And they've also got a slightly tougher schedule, so Ohio State comes back on the schedule. But, I mean, they should be better than they were last year, and they were pretty good last year. They you know, we're nine, ten, three, and the three losses were games they actually led by double digits um, late into the second half against Nebraska, Michigan, and Penn State. So, you know, you got King Coulter as a really dynamic quarterback, Henrik Mark, probably one of the best running backs in the country. You know, they got a chance to be to have one of their best teams in a long time. But again, it's a matter of, you know, do they keep playing with kind of the chip on the shoulder that Northwestern t- tends to play with, 
now that they've actually won a bowl game, which they hadn't done in a long time, and our ranks before the season even starts, um, and then the schedule. I think the Big Ten was so down last year that any team in the Big Ten is looking at a tougher road this year. Um, so I think, I mean, just in that division alone, Michigan should be better, Michigan State should be better, Nebraska has a chance to have an incredibly explosive offense. Um, you know, it's going to be tougher for those teams this year. One last nerd thing: we, we had uh, we had an Ivy League team win the national championship in hockey this year too. So, may across the board, it's like the nerds are. Uh, you know, the, the academic schools have, have not really had much problem in most of the other sports. Um, it's really you know football. <laughs> yeah, it's been the stumbling block, and for for many reasons, and um, partially just because. They just—I think it was just assumed. Well, you can't be a good academic school and be good in football. They're mutually exclusive, and you know, these, these programs trying to prove that wrong right now. Really, Vanderbilt being the most—I mean, Northwestern went to the Rose Bowl in the '90s, and Stanford has had you know, John Elway and Andrew Luck and whatnot. But um, Vanderbilt is just was such a doormat for so long, and now they're with James Franklin. They're—you uh, know—they're they're competitive every week in the SEC. A lot of people never thought they'd see the day. Last thing, it seems like so much has gone wrong for Notre Dame since really the snap of the national championship game. They're ranked at 11. Is that kind of one of these over over expectations because they're Notre Dame kind of a things? I mean, can they be that good again this year, or would you expect them to take a step back, or where do you assess them after everything that's gone probably, wrong from them? For them? Probably about right. I mean, yeah. I expected them to take a little bit of a step back, but voters have already done it, you know. Right. If, if you look at the coaches' ranking, every other top ten team from last year is still ranked in the top ten, except for them. They're the ones that really took a tumble. Um, I guess, you know, between the title game blowout and losing over Golson, so I think Tommy Reese can have a good year. Uh, I think they'll still be really good on defense. Um, I think the problem is offensive playmakers. They lost a bunch of them. Uh, they weren't that dynamic on offense to begin with, so um, had a lot of close games. You know, the pit game comes to mind. Games at Stanford, you know, at the goal line. Games that could have gone one way or the other. So, you know, it'll be. Uh, they might not get quite you know, be on the right side of those close games again this year, but they'll still be very good. I, don't, I think there was a kind of an overreaction to the Alabama game and uh, wanting to say, "Oh, you know, they had no business being on the field," and that is it up. But uh, so maybe they weren't the number one or two team in the country, but I don't think they were that far off from it. It's at S.L. Mandel on Twitter. You can find him there, SI.com, for most of his work, occasionally in the magazine. I remember when we first started talking, you were a big Lost guy. You're doing a Lost podcast. Has anything captured your imagination? I know it's never going to probably be to that level again, but are you you into anything these days? Are you getting pumped for the end of Breaking Bad? Did you ever get on that? Anything TV-wise got you pumped up? Yeah, I've done a lot of binge-watching and catching up on like entire shows, and one of them was Breaking Bad. Um, which I watched for the first time, I want to say, in January or February, probably January. Uh, so I'm really pumped for the, um, to see the final season, just like everybody else. But I guess, you know, some people have been invested in it for five years. I've been invested in it for about eight months, but I'm still really excited for it. Yeah, binge-watching is really the way to go, I think. I mean, you just you almost can't beat it. But, uh, all right, I mean, thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just, just like... I don't know, like, it seems like you start a new show and then you get really into it, but then you have to sweat it out when renewals come. It's like, did I invest this much into this show for nothing? 
and then sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But with binge watching, you go in knowing like what you got in front of you there, you know. Well, Lost is a very unique show in that it was almost like football, where you know they play the games on Saturday and then you spend the whole next week analyzing what just happened, previewing the next one. That happens with Lost, I and mean, that was there's entire communities and Entertainment Weekly reviews and. You lose that if you just watch, you know, the entire season three in a weekend. But, True. You know, otherwise, I do think that, you know, it's it's nice to not have to wait a week to find out what happens next. Well, I promise, or I hope, I can. Make, this may be a bad promise to make with college football, but I hope that next time we talk, the first question isn't scandal-related because it just seems like we hook up for that reason way too much. Thanks for doing this. I hope so, too, because I, I enjoy covering the game so much. Yeah, so do I. Thanks a lot, Stuart. All right, thank you. I want to thank Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com for being on the show. I also want to thank Rich Eisen from the NFL Network. I want to thank you for listening. If it's your first time, we really appreciate it. Hope you check us out again. You can find the Sportscasters on the internet at www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can email us, the Sportscasters, at gmail.com. One more thing for me this week. Uh, this is the section of the show where we kind of inject a little bit of ourselves, maybe even more so than three things, because we this is kind of freeform. We'll talk about whatever. I've talked about wanting to go to Comic-Con and uh, – the fantasy football draft itself, not related to strategy, but just how fun of an event it is. Anyway, I asked, you have to come up with an original thought then once a week, and that's hard Difficult, enough, and yeah. now we had to come up with two original thoughts. That's a lot. So I put that task on my wife. Uh, as we're driving over here, I said to her, what, sh- what should I talk about? If you had one a platform to talk to people, what would you talk about? And she said... Tell them about how you're worthless as a man. And it wasn't exactly in those words, but uh, we're doing some home improvements now, and I am in the home improvement department fairly worthless as a man, but the the point of this is that I'm getting better. Uh, I did baseboard, which is very bare bones, but we did it. Uh, We put it in before someone came and put a carpet in. And Our next step is doing tile. And I guess all I would say is uh, try stuff. You know, it's not too expensive to do something like baseboard. If you've got tools, you can borrow or... I'll pass. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's thank ex- you. It's just expensive to pay people for stuff. We paid someone to do the rug, and it's going to cost way more than it co- it's going to cost to do nice ceramic tile in our kitchen. And we're going to tackle that project next. And then I will feel almost like a real man once we're done with that. I have a pro tip for you. About... You should have married a girl whose dad knows how to do this stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's right. Your uh, dad's like a yeah. Miss Caster's dad is a professional. It's like a contractor. Yeah, or something. so yeah. he uh, he comes around and and he. Uh, my stepdad's a brick mason, and my dad. Your is, dad's a real deal too. Yeah, he's, he's an like engineer. A, he's an engineer, but like he's the type of guy that uh, if he can't do it, he'll figure it out. But he's just gotten to the point where because he's an engineer, he has enough money to just and he's getting older, so he just pays people to do his crap. So he doesn't necessarily want to do all of my crap. One last thing, and oh, were you done? No, that's good. Uh, one last thing, I was going to talk about how the people in the Big Brother house are idiots because they talk about how they love child porn and have their door at home busted down by the local <laughs> sheriff. <laughs> what? But, 
right, I, I guess I can't just tease that and, and not do it. So right now it's summer, so people are trapped in a house, a fake house on a studio lot in California recording the reality show Big Brother on CBS. Right. And there's a big burly dude in there with a red beard named Spencer. And I guess in a joking fashion, he was talking to some other dudes in the house about how he likes to beat off, masturbate to uh, child porn. And he was kidding, I suppose, but the local authorities where he's from didn't find it funny and busted his house down to search the premises for child porn, which they wow. found on. Luckily for him, yeah, I guess, because if they would have found some, he probably would have got dragged out of said Big Brother house <laughs> and put in prison. Uh, but I, instead, I wanted to talk about something else, and we uh, had Rich Eisen on the show today. Yeah, do you think that's he? Do you think he listens to the end of the podcast? <laughs> I hope not. I guess at this point. <laughs> uh, I want to completely separate this point from the last one. They're, they're totally different points. Uh, when Rich Eisen was booked for the show, I was surprised, sort of, uh, that we were able to get Rich Eisen. And I immediately assumed that it happened because of our relationship with Dave Damashek. Right. I text Dave and I said, Dave, I was able to book Eisen. I'm pumped. Did you help? If you did, thank you so much. And I kind of assumed he did because when we initially reached out to Fabiano – he had mentioned to me that the only reason he did it was because he asked Dave about us and Dave put the good word in. He said, you know, I don't mean to be mean, but I get a lot of these and sure. I probably would have said no, but Dave told me to give you guys a try. And we did a good job apparently because Fabiano has been on several times since. Right. And uh, I don't think he asked Dave every time. I think we earned his respect, I suppose. Sure. Well, I reached out to Dave and Dave said, you know what? I haven't seen Eisen in a while. Congratulations. And he can be... That's a great get. Right. You know, congratulations. That's a great get. He, like uh, Fabiano, I imagine, gets a lot of these offers. Absolutely. And Dave, as cool as he is, knew it was today and texted me while I was at dinner. And he wanted to know how it went. Really? Yeah, Dave's the real dude. I just think that's, like, unbelievable. And I guess I want to take this last few minutes in what is a big moment for us. To say we would have never been here without Dave Damashek. Because one, we probably would have never done a sports podcast because, you know, it's almost like a band, right? If you're a big fan of Pearl Jam, they might inspire you if you had musical talent. Me and Don don't, so we can't do this. <laughs> but you might be in a band, and someday you might say, we would have never done this without an influence from Pearl Jam. And we are here because of the path that they've blazed. And in some similar way, Dave has blazed that path in the podcasting industry. And I just wanted to thank Dave on behalf of both of us for everything he's done for this show and uh, for being just a kind, great dude that he is. 